you and I are involved in an organization where people's lives are saved every day. And the mechanism that's used for that is us. We're the tool that's used for this. We actively participate in the life-saving experience of another human being. Certainly, yes, ourselves, but other people too. And the understanding is it doesn't spring forth from me, it flows through me. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, lads and lassies. That was the voice of Mr. Bill C. that you heard at the beginning of this episode today. You are in for a treat. Believe me. And we're going to hear much more from Bill C. in just a moment. But first things First, you know where I'm going with this. This episode is brought to you by Michelle and Stephen. You know what Michelle and Stephen did? They went to our website, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the PayPal Donate tab, and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Miss Michelle and Mr. Stephen, for your generous contribution. This episode is is for you. All right. So I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. All right. So a couple of announcements. We have a little bit of listener feedback, then I'll do an introduction to Bill C., and then we will turn it over to him. So August 30th, 19 2019, uh, here in Frisco, Texas, we are having a Sober Speak Live event, and I'm really excited about this. Our guest speaker is going to be Mr. Jimmy D. Once again, if you have not heard him before and you want to go back and listen to him, he is on episodes number 54 and 55 of Sober Speak. Just go back in your catalog there. And um, so people have asked me a couple of times what this is going to be like. So 
first of all, we're going to have Jimmy D. You'll get to meet my family. You'll get to meet Miss Cassandra, who has been very, very helpful in getting the word out about Sober Speak all over Instagram and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you will get to meet in person many of the Sober Speak guests because they're going to be there at the event, and I am going to bring them up on stage and introduce introduce them. You're going to hear great live music by, oh, an individual named Wendy Child. She is just out of this world. Uh, it's really going to be like a uh, uh, kind of a coffee house vibe there. We're going to have coffee. We're going to have drinks, non-alcoholic, of course, and we're going to have dessert. Uh, and so, uh, oh, this is the other thing I wanted to say. We, I realize that there's only a portion of this audience that can actually make it to the event just because of proximity. Um, we are going to be, I'm, I'm almost positive, right? I'm 95% sure at this point, we're going to be streaming the event on Facebook Live. So we're going to stream it on our, only in our secret Facebook group and nowhere else. So if you are not in the secret Facebook group and you want to be in there to watch this event, uh, please email me at john at soberspeak.com. Send me your email address associated with your Facebook account and we will send you an invite. And also keep this in mind, if indeed you are part of the group right now and you want to invite others who are not in there already uh, as appropriate, in other words, people involved in the 12-step community and such like that, if you want to send them an invite, you are more than happy to do that from your own Facebook account. All right. Another thing is we are, I am considering childcare, okay? So I can have childcare available, quote, if, unquote, we need it. So please, please email me if you need childcare and I can have childcare available that night, right? If that's your only hindrance from being able to come to the actual event, uh, please, please email me and let me know and we will have childcare available for you. All right. So, uh, and also if you're interested in lending a hand during the festivities, in other words, you want to be a volunteer, please let me know. Many hands make light work. So go just ahead and go ahead and email me at john at soberspeak.com. All right. One thing that caught, well, there's a lot of things that caught my attention, but one thing I'm going to read here on the front of this episode, uh, from the secret Facebook group was posted by Jill. And this caught my attention this week. It was short. It was to the point. Uh, and I think there was a lot of depth and weight behind it. And Jill posted in the secret Facebook group. She said, moving forward means being honest about your bad choices. Being honest about your bad choices. Okay. Admitting them to yourself and others and taking responsibility. Let me go ahead and read that again. Moving forward means being honest about your bad choices, admitting them to yourself and others, and taking responsibility. And then, it, and then she followed it up with, you will never find peace if you keep blaming others for what you have done. Oh man, that is, that has depth and weight. You will never find peace if 
You keep blaming others for what you have done. Ugh. And then she says, only when you admit how you screwed up in a given situation can you truly be free enough to move forward. Thank you so much for posting that in the uh, secret Facebook group, Miss Jill. Um, like I said, uh, I really think that that has a lot for all of us to chew on. All right. If you're not following me on Instagram, do such. I'm at at sober speak, all one word. Um, and if this podcast Either this episode or the podcast as a whole is adding value to you and you think somebody else could benefit, please pause your device and share out the entire podcast or share an episode from it and uh, either with a friend or a family member. Um, that's the way this thing has grown and it has grown tremendously and it's all because of you guys because what you've done and I just, oh, I just can't thank you enough. I wish I could come out there and give you a, 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 a physical hug. But here goes a big virtual hug. Um, I love you guys to death. I appreciate all you've done for this. And once again, my aim is to get the, get the speakers who come into this thing, all the guest speakers who come in here, uh, I, I want to get them heard by as many people as possible. So if you can share that, I would absolutely appreciate it. All right, now on to Mr. Bill C., Bill C. is from Southern California. Some of you are going to know Bill C. I'm sure he is a, a popular, I guess what you like to call a circuit speaker, uh, but he's a really great guy. He's fantastic. Uh, I so much enjoyed spending time with him. Uh, he's been sober since 1985. His father got sober through Alcoholics Anonymous in 1954. His mother was one of the original founders of the Al-Anon Central, Central offices in Los Angeles. Um, Bill began drinking with what he called with intent around 14 or 15 years old. And by the time he was 17, he was already what he referred to as a bad alcoholic. And he kept drinking heavily until he was 37 years old. We discuss his, uh, his this is, was a very interesting part to me, and that is he got to visit with Chuck Chamberlain. And those of you who have been around AA for a long time, or maybe even a short period of time, you'll know Chuck C. from his... Uh, um, uh, tapes and book called a new pair of glasses. Uh, and anyway, he got to visit with him out of at, in his home in Laguna beach. And, oh man, that was just a, a, a great story for me. We talk about, uh, his encounter with the hell's angels, his time in an outlaw motorcycle gang, his liver transplant. And folks, that is just the tip of the iceberg without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome the one and only Bill C. Enjoy. All right, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Bill C. from the Southern California area. So Mr. Bill C., first of all, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, give you sobriety date if you wish, and maybe you can be a little bit more specific about where you live. Um, I'm Bill and I'm an alcoholic and I've been sober since March the 27th, 1985. And I'm from uh, Southern California in the South Bay. March 27th of 1985. So help me with the math there. That is how many years now? 34. 
Congratulations on 34 years, Mr. Bill. It was a lot of hard work and I did it all on my own. (laughs) Well, that's something. That's a little bit of a different story. All right. So, uh, so do we just kind of set the stage here? Bill and I uh, met when he was actually giving a talk at the Gathering of the Eagles here in the Dallas, Texas area where I live. I went up to Bill after he had given his talk. I think it was on a Friday night, if I'm not mistaken. And I think Johnny was coming in on Saturday night. Uh, but nonetheless, a Bill was there on Friday night. He gave his talk, and I went up to him afterwards, and I told him that I have a podcast, and uh, I asked him if he'd be interested in doing something like that. And I could tell you, I've been through that same scenario many times, and many people just go, hmm, I'm not sure about that. What is this podcast thingy that you have? But Bill immediately went, sure, let's give it a shot. And so we've been uh, communicating uh, past that time. And uh, I'm really uh, happy that he came here on the uh, Sober Speak podcast. So, all right, Bill. So first thing I want to ask you about is something that I heard you talk about in your uh, talk. And that was the tattoo that you have on your shoulder. (laughs) Can you tell people about that tattoo? Well, I was 18 years old and I was running around with a bunch of outlaw motorcycle people and pretending to be a tough guy. And uh, I was living at the time with uh, a group of people on the beach and uh, we were down at the Long Beach Pike and there's a tattoo parlor there called Burt Grimm's, very famous. It's no longer there anymore. It, it might be in a different incarnation, but it was this was long before tattoos were cool. And uh, we were imbibing a, a bit, and we decided that we were going to get some tattoos. And uh, being a young man and very vibrant and looking for action wherever I could find it, I thought putting horny on my arm would be appropriate. So we tattooed Horny, and at the time, the tattoo artist says, how do you spell that? And we all thought about it, and we spelled it (laughs) H-O-R-N-E-Y with an exclamation mark for emphasis. (laughs) It's actually (laughs) Horny. I have a stupid tattoo on my arm that is misspelled. That's pretty much all you need to know about me, I think. (laughs) Horny. All right. That was my biker nickname. (laughs) And the other thing that really struck me, and and I I don't know if I pick out the weird kind of things in people's talks or not, but uh, (laughs) uh, was your earring that you had that you wore during those days with the bikers. Can you tell people a little bit about that earring? Well, my story in a nutshell is I was a surfer and a biker and a tough guy, and uh, I never went to the beach. My motorcycle rarely ran, and I was afraid to fight, but I looked good. (laughs) And uh, I had um, greasy Levi's and uh, wore a chrome Nazi helmet for a hat and a primary chain for a belt and big black boots with chains around them and and, uh, but I had a clip-on earring because I didn't want to hurt myself. <laughs> so, 
that's the clip on airing. <laughs> All right. Years later, I told my kids, I said, I think I'll get a real earring. And they said, no, dad, you've missed the window. Please don't embarrass us. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. So let's uh, let's dive into your uh, other portions of your story, I guess I should say. So I, I know that you grew up with, I guess, uh, you had exposure to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous when you were younger. So why don't you talk about that exposure and how that came about? My father, my father got sober in 1954. He uh, in Los Angeles. I was I was six years old at the time. So when he got sober, I grew up in in one of those AA houses. My mother got real active in Al-Anon. My mother helped found the Al-Anon Central Office in Los Angeles. And she worked with Marty Mann at the Alcoholism Council. People that were sober then in the early and mid 50s especially on the West Coast, there was not a whole lot of AA. It was around, but not like it is today. I think in the, in the Los Angeles basin now, there's probably 5,000 meetings a week. It's that huge. It's just massive in, in Southern California, especially. But back then, essentially what they were doing is they were building the AA on the West Coast of, of the United States that we now enjoy. So, the people that were hanging around were Chuck Chamberlain and people of that ilk. And as a kid, they would take me to meetings. I would sit in the kitchen and help bring out the coffee and the donuts and hold hands at the end and keep coming back and all, all that kind of stuff. You know, I grew up with it. And I had the kind of house where I would come home on several occasions. I came home from school and there was somebody laying on the back porch waiting for their sponsor to come home. And many times they were drunk. And, and I'd help get them up and bring them in the house. And I mean, I, I can't say it was totally commonplace, but, you know, once that happens once or twice, you kind of get used to it. Oh, there's a guy laying on the back porch. <laughs> and like potlucks would just break out. You know, we were always having a party. And what I remember about it mostly, because when you're a kid, it's just the kind of the lame stuff your parents are doing. It's not like you're really connected to it. But my memories of that is all those people that were around the AA and the Al-Anons were uh, real friendly and, and funny. Certainly, there were people in distress. You know, I came home one day, there was a woman hiding in my garage, and, and that was the Al-Anon. You know, they're, they're kind of weird. And, uh, so I remember there was crisis, but mostly what I remember is just all these friendly people. You know, they, they were around, and they're always nice to the kid. When I was 17 years old and I was in a lot of trouble at 17, at 17, I was, I was a bad drunk in high school. And, and I, was, I was really in trouble. I'd already been to jail and, and I was in trouble at a very young age. My parents sent me down to Laguna Beach to talk to Chuck Chamberlain. You know, they thought Chuck could help me. And what I remember about that is I drove down there and I, you know, found the house. And I remember sitting next to him. He always would talk about sitting in his chair, looking out the bay window at the, at the ocean in Laguna. He had a lovely home there and a beautiful view. And, and I remember that. I remember sitting there with him and we sat out on the balcony for a while and he was telling me stories. And my, my most memory about that is I kept thinking, what is this old guy talking about? But I remember him very friendly I have vague memories. Sometimes I think if I just create them, but I remember 
him and many others just being at the house or we're at their house for like a Christmas party or something like that. My mother was very close to, to his wife, Elsa. When I got sober years, years later, and I had the opportunity to sit with my parents, it became much more intriguing about who it was and what was going on. I mean, they met Bill W. a couple of times. He came out, you know, the, they had the international convention in Long Beach in 65, and, you know, parents were around, and they met, got to meet Bill. They were friends with Chuck and, and all that. And, and when I got sober, it became much more interesting. I was much more curious about it and would grill them about what happened here and who said what and all the infighting and <laughs> bad behavior. And, and it was all funny because then those people had more significance because, you know, I'm listening to their talks and stuff, you know, I mean, it's, I always thought it was, I was an only child. There's nothing worse than living in a house with two people with very clear eyes that know exactly what's going on in your head, you know? I mean, when you're being the bad kid and you're out drinking and racing hell, they know exactly what's going on. They're waiting for you. You can't, you know, so I, I always looked at that as kind of a, a, a negative in my life. And then when I got sober, you know, it, it completely flipped. And then it became very interesting to sit and talk to them about what was going on. Wow. Very interesting. All those names and all those years and steeped in all that tradition. And at the time, you had a different perspective. You couldn't see what was going on. And then same man, uh, same situation, but your perspective, your perspective changed when you got older. Um, all right. So that was this. So it sounded like you, like you said, you were kind of a bad drunk, so to speak, when you were even 17. So take me through. So you, so you're drinking, you're a bad drunk at 17. What age did you actually end up sobering up at? 37. That's a 20 year stretch there. Can you give me a thumbnail of that 20 year stretch and, you know, some of the highlights or maybe some lowlights of that particular period? Well, you know, I think like, I don't think my story is that much different than many other people. You know, you have a tendency when you speak a lot, you have to kind of embellish it a bit to make it interesting. But it's kind of a standard story. I mean, I, I started, you know, sipping on beers and stuff when I was probably 12 or 13. And by the time I was 14 or 15, I was drinking with intent, you know, and uh, you know, looking for it and trying to score it and paying money to the guy that was living behind the gas station to go in the liquor store and get you a six pack and he could keep the change, that kind of thing just like kids do. I, I don't think there was anything that malevolent about it. It was just what you're doing. It was fun. It was exciting. It was interesting. And it started off like that. But by the time I was a junior in high school, certainly probably 15 years old, I was drinking pretty regularly and, and beginning to get in trouble. I'm stealing the family car and doing stupid kid stuff like that. And but by the time I was 17, I remember when I was a senior in high school, I was in trouble. You know, I got, I got picked up skulking around at night, you know, brought to the police station and call the parents and get to come down there and, and all that trauma. You know, when I say I've been to jail, well, you know, I, it, was, it was innocent enough, you know, but it was, I was out where I shouldn't have been. I was drinking and I was skulking around somebody's house and outside at night and they called the police on me trying to get that girl to come to the window, you know, it was with that thing, you know, it was that, that, and it was, it was innocent enough, but 
you know, I was out of the house. I had snuck out of the house. I was starting starting that pattern, you know, of, of semi criminal criminal behavior. And at 17, you know, I was drinking before school and going and walking into school drunk and acting silly and stupid and getting in that kind of trouble. You know, I barely graduated from high school. I, I had to go to four nights a week in night school to make a, get enough credits to be able to graduate. And I just barely graduated. You know, I had no interest in school. I was in trouble all the time. And, you know, the, the school had kind of given up even talking to me. They just wanted to get rid of me. It was that kind of thing. You know, and you think you act like you're getting away with stuff, but it's kind of humiliating, you know, when you're bad enough where people look at you and they can tell by the look at your face that there's no reason to talk to you, that he's one of those kids. You know, I had a big jacket and a slouch and a sneer and a bad attitude and I'm loud. I'm six foot five and I'm loud and I'm obnoxious and arrogant. You know, I'm not a quiet, funny, little cute guy sitting over in the corner. I'm the aggressive guy, you know, that's causing trouble, you know, it's getting in trouble. And, and it was very negative. It was violent. I carried a gun and, uh, you know, and I'm I'm living in a middle class white neighborhood called Palace Verdes. There's no gangs and <laughs> nobody's looking for me. It's not like a dangerous place, you know. <laughs> I didn't watch too many movies, you know. I, I was trying to be a gangster. I was a wannabe gangster. <laughs> and uh, you know, at it, it, it about 17 years old, I'm at Bass Lake up above Fresno, California, and on the Fourth of July, and the Hell's Angels rode into that valley and. I thought that looked really good to me. You know, that I want to be a gangster, an outlaw, wear a big duster with six shooters and, you know, ride my thing. Just that, that image looked really good. It was very attractive to me. And I pursued that. You know, I met a girl down there and she lived in Oregon and we drove up to Oregon and I, we ended up getting married and had a couple of kids and I'm running with an outlaw motorcycle gang up there and, you know, shooting drugs in my arm, on a daily basis and drinking like a fish and you know they're on welfare and I'm not coming home and I ended up in the Oregon State Mental Institution at 22 years old that's a short party you know there's not you know you start you're in trouble at 17 by the time you're 22 you're at a mental institution you know this is not a party this this isn't fun anymore and hadn't been fun in a while it's it's like it's a lifestyle it's not partying on the weekends. This is a lifestyle. This is the way I'm living. And, and I'm, you know, there's just destruction all around me and I'm in a mental institution. I was in the Oregon State Mental Institution. It was, I was on the ward that Ken Kesey worked on when he wrote Cuckoo's Nest. Really? And they filmed that movie on the ward that I was on. They filmed it on that ward. So Very interesting. Next time you see that movie, think of me. <laughs> well... <laughs> Years later, I went up to Salem, Oregon, where that place is, to speak at an AA conference. I met this guy there, long-haired hippie guy that moved up to Oregon about the same time I did and just never left. And I'm sitting talking to him, and, and I said, you know, I was in the mental institution there. He goes, well, I work there. And I thought, well, of course you do. Where else? <laughs> He's about my age same amount of sobriety, you know, and we're still friends to this day. This was years ago. And, uh, and he took me there and, and we found the ward I was on, took pictures, took pictures of me next to the sign, you know, and I mean, some people went to college. This was <laughs> graduate school for me. You know? this, was, this was my alma mater. 
<laughs> year, a couple of years after that, I went up to Portland to speak again. And some guys that I met in Salem that previous time drove up to Portland and they brought me a T-shirt that they had made for me. And it says, Oregon State Hospital Alumni. <laughs> well, congratulations. Yeah. You can put that on your resume. Yes. So I, uh, it's one of my prized possessions, actually. So here I am at 22. I'm in, I, you know, I, I just destroyed this family. I have two sons that are up there still, that they're in their 50s. You know, both of them have their problems. And, and uh, I mean, I had created that much havoc in my life. And you look at recovery, the recovery world today, and there are just thousands of kids that age getting sober. Back then, 1968, 69, I don't remember anybody talking to me about sobriety then. They may have, and I just don't remember. You know, I spent two tours in that mental institution, and I there was therapy that but nobody was talking to me about it. They just loaded me up full of Thorazine and just put me in a room, you know, essentially. But today, you know, I, I have, I started sponsoring some kids some years ago when all the kids started coming into recovery. And I thought, what am I going to do with this 18-year-old sitting across the kitchen table from me? What am I supposed to do with that? It was a little unnerving. They look too young. They're too young. You know, I had that that prejudice. And when they started coming into my men's stag, my home group, a lot of the older guys left. They said, well, we're not a daycare center. And I was uncomfortable with it too. I, you know, but I thought, no, nah, this is the way things are. And there was a bunch of us that said, well, we'll just do the best we can. You know, what can we do? But I, here's what I discovered from that. One thing, they're coming to AA because they need help, not because it's so hip. There's this illusion that they're just hanging out here. It's, that's not what's going on. Certainly a lot of them get sent by mommy and daddy or the recovery industry. So what? So what? When you're sitting across a table from one of these kids, it's redemption. I'm talking to myself. That was me. I was like this kid. I was in bad shape. When I was 18, I was worse than I was at 17. And 19 was worse than that. You know, by the time I hit 22, I'm in a mental institution. I'm injecting drugs and drinking like a fish and living a criminal life. And it's not me. I don't have no idea why I was there. That just isn't me. The reason I ended up in the mental hospital, because I was in an environment that scared me to my core. It was violent, it was frightening, and it was drug-addled, and it was, it just scared me so bad I ended up in a mental institution. I don't have anything chemically wrong with me. I have bad behavior, and I end up in bad places. So I'm sitting there talking to these kids, and it's redemption. It's like I know once i quiet enough to realize I know exactly what's going on with this kid. Exactly. I just have to go back in time a little bit, you know. And now I'm at the time when this was happening. I was, what, 20 years sober. You know, it's like I'm this old dude. I look older than them. But I tell you, the age difference goes away. The age difference goes away when you're sitting, turning the pages of the book and sharing your life with somebody. It doesn't matter how old they are. And now these kids, kids, they're not kids anymore. I sponsor a couple of guys that are 15, 16 years sober, and they're in their early 30s. They're peers. They're equals now. 
They're running the show. I'm just glad they let me still come to the meeting. The recovery world is in good hands. It's in good hands. These kids are enthusiastic. They're fired up. They've got commitments. They're doing everything I've done and more. At 22, that's where I was. I wish that that had been there for me like it is for them today. Talk about that young man that uh, I heard you tell that story once about the gentleman, young guy who you said gave the uh, the right wing sort of uh, talk at uh, I think he was getting a cake or something like that. He was 15 years old and he was getting a birthday cake celebrating one year of sobriety and he's 15. He stands up at the head of the room. You know, you've got a room full of 80 to 100 guys. And it can be intimidating sometimes, you know, depends on how you look at it. Like when you're in the group, you realize it's not so much. But when you're young like that and everybody else is old, I mean, a 30-year-old guy looks like an old man to you, you know, when you're 15. So he stands up at the head of the room and he gave the most right-wing death squad AA talk I've heard. I, I couldn't think of anything worse. And he stood at the end of it. He's ranting and raving and he's pointing and spits flying out of his mouth. And he says, if you're sitting out there and you don't have a sponsor and you're not working the steps, may God have mercy on your soul. (laughs) (laughs) And the room just erupted. And uh, after that, I walked up to him and I said, will you be my sponsor? (laughs) Hilarious. And he said, yes. Oh, that's great. All right, let me take a little break here. We'll be continuing our conversation with Bill C. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. There you will find oh, approximately 90 plus episodes you can listen to for free. Uh, You can also find the donate button on our website. If the spirit moves you to do so, you can use that. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Bill C. So, Bill... At one point, we were communicating uh, back and forth about when you when you would be able to appear on this, and you mentioned that you were over in Russia, and I was just assuming that you were over in Russia doing some uh, work for Alcoholics Anonymous, so to speak. Can you tell me a little bit about that trip? Actually, what it was, uh, it was just a, a tourist trip. We just went to go. A friend of mine travels there a lot. And uh, we just went, my wife and I went with him and his wife. And he's a sober guy, too. So he'd been going over there for years, maybe for 20 years, uh, doing spiritual talks. He's a spiritual teacher. So when he'd be over there, he'd go to meetings, right? So he knew meetings and knew people in Moscow. And he informed them that he was bringing me. And if they wanted to have me speak somewhere, that we could do that. We'd carve out some time. So the night before we left, we were there for uh, 11 days or so. The night before we left in Moscow, they put together this meeting. Two or three groups got together and said, well, let's go to this meeting hall here and we'll have this guy come and talk to us. And it was absolutely fascinating. You know, we rode the subway out there. The person came and got us and we went out there and, and they, it was a three-hour meeting. <laughs> I had no idea. 
And probably a couple of hundred people showed up to this thing. And they don't normally have speaker meetings there. They'll just kind of put something. I didn't know any of this. They just put something together. When somebody comes through town, they put something together and create a speaker meeting. And you can come and, you know, because they, they just don't normally do that. Mostly they're discussion meetings or book studies. So we show up to this thing and there's this crowd of people. It's going to be three hours. You're going to give your talk and then we'll do Q&A. And I had a uh, translator, this woman who's, you know, not a sober person, but very sensitive and had done, been around a little bit, get an idea of it. And so it was really interesting sitting there. You know, I've done, I've, I've done stuff before with a translator, but they're in another room and they're translating as you're talking. But this was her sitting right next to me on this stage. And I could only say a sentence or two and then she would interpret. So you have to kind of get a rhythm going. It was really fascinating. She was really good. I mean, and I'm kind of intimidated. I figured they're not going to get the jokes or the humor. They're not going to get the horny tattoo thing. You know? <laughs> this is a different culture with a different language. And how is that going to interpret? One of the things I was instructed by this guy, Nikita, uh, he says to me, he speaks English. He says to me, uh, really talk about the steps in the process. They really need that here. It's AA isn't as vibrant as where you come from. It's, it's still struggling. And uh, Moscow is a city of about 22 million people, I guess. And somebody said to me that there's maybe 3,000 people or so in AA there. So it's pretty small, struggling, but it's vibrant. There's a vibrancy about it. At least that was my experience. Anyway, so I give the talk, and it was, uh, it was really interesting. And I'll tell you something. That experience really showed me there really is a language of the heart. And the way that presented itself is after I spoke, these people, a lot of them just rush the stage. They come up to talk to you, you know, and they want to have your picture taken with you and they want you to sign their big book, you know. I mean, it's like it's a little off-putting, you know, because you're not used to that really. But I just kind of relaxed into it and it became just very sweet. And what it is, the overall energy of that is, is that they're really hungry for this thing. The people that come up, they, they want to talk to you, you know. And a couple of people, I had these very intimate conversations through the interpreter, which is kind of a, a, a very different experience. And one guy came up to me and he said, you know, I'm six months sober. I just did my fifth step and I hate myself. I just hate myself. I just, you know, and he was clearly disturbed. And through the interpreter, later she talked to me. She says, that whole thing, she was thanking me. I'm thanking her because I couldn't, I mean, it was a team effort here, you know. And she, of course, not being sober, some of the uh, phraseology, she'd have to stop me and ask me so she could clarify it. You know, it's like you, you, we end up just saying things when somebody else, and she's trying to interpret, what does that mean? You know, like, what, what do you mean one day at a time? And how does that interpret in Russian or something of those, those things like that, you know? And this poor guy was standing there and he was clearly upset. And what I told him was what I know from my own experience is that transformation is painful. It's not, a, it's not a, without its pain. It isn't like we get sober and everything's just bliss and daisies. You know, you, when you come out of the fog, they take away your medication and you realize how you've lived your life, it's painful. It's pathetic. And it's, it's 
it hurts. You, you know, I remember being where he, I told him this and where you, I did my fist up at about six months sober. And I had the same reaction that first few months. I look back on the last 20 plus years of my life and I'm like, God, what have I done with my life? What am I, you can't imagine recovering from the remorse and the regret of your behavior all those years. And I said, what I can, what I told this guy is I said, whatever you do, don't run away. You know, now that you've opened up the can of worms, continue the process. When you get into the amends process, you start rebuilding the bridges you've burned. And at the end of that process or near the end, you begin to feel better about yourself. And I could say to him, and this language is universal. I'm looking at him and I say, I do not feel that way about myself today. And you're no different than I am. You will survive this. Don't run away, you know, and he kind of grinned a little, you know, he, I mean, through the interpreter, there was a connection between me and this, and we did not speak the same language, or do we? You know, it's one drunk talking to another. It doesn't matter what the language is. It was uncomfortable for me, and it was uncomfortable for him. Can you imagine the courage it took for that man to come up and talk to somebody that's com- from a different country with a different language and talk about something that he's going through personally? How do you do that? I mean, you and I are involved in an organization where people's lives are saved every day. And the mechanism that's used for that is us. We're the tool that's used for this. We actively participate in the life-saving experience of another human being. Certainly, yes, ourselves, but other people too. And the understanding is it doesn't spring forth from me, it flows through me. So that experience on that stage, and there was another woman that came up and she was having health problems. She's sober a while, but she was very suicidal, you know, and, and I had the conversation with her through the interpreter, go find somebody that's more miserable than you. You know, I can't cure your medical problem, you know, but I can help you cure your depression from it by getting out of yourself and working with somebody else. Two and a half years ago, I had a liver transplant. You know, for years prior to that, I was sick. You know, what kept me going through the depression of that illness? It was, it was devastating. You know, well, when the newcomer or the new guy you're sponsoring calls you up and asks you how you're doing, and you start to tell him, and then he interrupts you and talks about himself. And you get all butthurt because, you know, you want to talk about you. But no, you don't get to do that because you're in this recovery program that causes you to be, get out of yourself all the time, which is a better place to be, no matter what's going on. So I could tell this woman, that's what you need to do. And she smiled at me. She knows that. She just needed to hear it. You know, she knows. You know, we all know. But when you're in the middle of a crisis, you don't remember that. So we communicate with each other, whether it's in Russian or English. You know, it's the same language. It's the same thing, you know. Like you said, it's the language of the heart. Yeah. And it's true. And that's a real live experience of that, you know. Because the language that you're speaking isn't the same, but what's coming from the heart certainly is. And the person receiving it knows that. So I'm signing these people's books, and what I'm looking at when I'm signing their books is friends of mine that have been over there and signed books. When I got back, I called them up, and I go, dude, <laughs> I was over there. Go, oh, did they do the three-hour meeting? Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's, it was really cool. I really felt connected, you know? way over there in the Kremlin, you know, it was amazing. 
Ah, oh, God Wonderful bless you. experience. Yeah, God bless you. That's great. And it was a great end of our trip, you know, because it was the night before the next morning we flew out. And that was the memory we were left with, mm. really connected. And that, that's another beautiful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous in, or any of the 12-step programs. You travel around and you're, you're in a foreign country somewhere and you go there, you know people. We know people everywhere. You just don't know that until you're there. And you make the effort to go to a meeting or, you know, and, and, and they love showing you where they live, you know, they love. So it's, it's another extra perk. So let's go back to your story a little bit. So obviously at some point you ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? What was the, uh, you know, you always hear this, what's the turning point, you know, what kind of, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? What got you in and did you stay in once you got in for the first time? I think that most of us just kind of fall over from the sheer exhaustion of the lifestyle. And that's what happened to me. I, uh, as I look back on it, I mean, at the time, you know, the, the joke I make is that I was up all night one more time, nothing special, just another drunk. And like any good gangster, I called my mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> the horny guy with the clip on airing called his mother and uh, she came and got me. This is a woman by that time that had been in Al-Anon for 30 years and they're organized and prepared and <laughs> focused. And she came and got me inside of a half an hour and she checked me into a recovery place in Costa Mesa called starting point. And I was just exhausted. I, I was just, I was burned out. Uh, there was no, uh, spiritual awakening or no voice. I didn't get on my knees and ask for help. I didn't, it wasn't anything like that. I was just, uh, I, I remember that that morning, there's nothing worse than being up all night and the sun comes up and you know you're going to have a, one more miserable day. One, my, I got horrible, horrible hangovers and I was just physically sick and I couldn't make it to work, and, and I, it was just going to be another one of those days. And I just, I was just pooped. And my young daughter got up early. She was three years old, and she was happy to see her dad up. You know, how kids are, they're just so innocent. You know, I mean, just that. And it just was devastating to me. You know, I know I wasn't a father, and I wasn't a husband. I wasn't any of those things. And I was just in tears. And I called my mother, and she came and got me and checked me in this place. And I've been sober ever since. You know, that's my story. You know, I, I never I never tried to stop drinking or using before then. You know, I would change things a little bit, try to moderate, but I never tried to stop. I never had any intention of stopping. And when I checked myself into this place, you know, I, I hid the marijuana and the cocaine I had because I knew I'd need it when I came out. And I knew I needed to stop drinking, but I had no intention of of getting sober. You know, I don't think so. I knew I had to stop drinking. And in this place, this recovery place was a pretty straight ahead place. It was a 12, it was run by a bunch of sober people. Uh, and they would make you read the book. And by the time you got out of there, you did a fourth and a fifth step. You know, it was like, there'd be morning meditations and they had group therapy and they had counseling and stuff like that. But it was a pretty straight ahead 12 step kind of thing. You know, by the time I got out of there after 35 days, I had read the book and I had done an inventory and, I, and I'd done a fifth step. I, I feel fortunate that that happened. When I got out of there, um, I just knew I was going to drink again. I, I had never, I, I can't, I don't think since I was 15 years old that I'd not 
drank or used something for 35 days. I don't think I ever had, you know, I mean, there were periods in my life where I wasn't as bad as other times, but I was always medicated. You know, I mean, always, you know, I, I, I smoked pot every day for probably 15 or 20 years, somewhere in, I mean, decades, you know, I mean, it just every day, you know, you get up, smoke a joint, start the day, you know, it's like that. So there'd always been something in my system because the impact of your personality on me is devastating. I can't do you. I need something in me all the time to cushion the blow of you on me. <laughs> so here I am after this recovery place, 35 days, nothing in my system, nothing. That's a raw place. That's a scary place. It's not a happy place. I don't remember it as that. I felt good about it just morally. That's good. This is a good thing. But how do you deal? I mean, I don't think I had ever had sex sober. Ever. I don't think so. So I couldn't imagine having sex sober. I mean, you know, I mean. <laughs> It was scary to even think about, you know, right. that kind of stuff. And, and so regular day-to-day -day stuff was all brand new. It was raw and edgy. So I got out of there. I believe I got out on a Friday. I think it was. And I went to a meeting that night. I, I went to a, an AA meeting in Hermosa Beach, and it was the gong show. It was a crazy Friday night meeting. Everybody dressed up looking for some action right <laughs> and, and I go there and I'm standing in the back of the room and they're raucous they're counting off the steps and hooting at people that are on the podium a lot of people said it wasn't really an AA meeting it probably wasn't you know I mean it was just crazy and I'm standing in the back of the room feeling like an outsider I don't know anybody you know I'm, I'm standing there not sitting in a chair because the room was full and I remember clearly driving home that night thinking, you know, this may not be so bad. <laughs> My reaction to it was, that was kind of interesting. I mean, what, like I'm an old hippie from the 60s. Weird has always attracted me. I get you. It was weird. It was, it was not what I was expecting. You know, it wasn't the meetings I remember when I was a kid. It wasn't like that at all, you know. I didn't have bad memories of those meetings. I mean, those people were always friendly to me and stuff, but I don't, you know, I walked into this room. This was a different animal. And so was I. I'm 37, you know, I'm almost 40. I'm different. I'm not a kid anymore, right? I feel out of place. I feel stupid. Everybody looked younger than me, but they weren't really, but that was an impression I had. And I drove home that night and I was, I, Two things happened to me that I just are lucky. And the first one's probably the most important. I just liked it when I walked into AA. Not a, That's not everybody. That's, most people don't feel that way, I think. You know, I have dear friends that said, God, they couldn't stand it. The first few months was just painful making themselves go, right? And I didn't have that experience. I was intrigued. It intrigued me. And, and I'm an extrovert by nature. You know, I'm somebody that, you know, I like people around me you know, which isn't true for everybody. And so I, I couldn't wait to get back. Plus, I was uncomfortable at home. I was uncomfortable at work. So the Alano Club, the clubhouse, was this neutral ground. I could hide out there and hide from my family from the work, you know. And everybody agreed that I should go there. 
No, nobody was arguing with it at all. I mean, nobody. No one. Down the street, when I got home from the recovery place, he comes down the street to come and see me. And, uh, and he, he's, as he's leaving the house, he goes, this is really good, Bill. You should keep this up. <laughs> My neighbors were rooting for me, you know? So AA was a safe place to hide out. And I've been hiding out there for 34 years, you know? It's a, uh, and, and I think what's going on in recovery is that we're growing up emotionally. You know, this spiritual path, the essence of the spiritual path is we're going to grow up now because we skipped it when we were teenagers. That's what's going on. And that's what the journey's been like. You know, I, I, you know, I heard a guy years ago say that Alcoholics Anonymous is man school. I mean, it's woman's school, too. Right, I got but you. But if you do, the, if you work the steps, if you get involved, it will teach you how to be an adult male or female. It'll teach you how to be appropriate. There, there's no way to avoid it, you know. And you'll hear guys in AA say, you know, well, well, I don't like to be told what to do. Never tell an alcoholic what to do or he'll do the opposite. Well, that's kind of cute when you're 15. When you're 40, it's just stupid. <laughs> it's just stupid. And we all walk around blaming everything on our alcoholism. Well, I have bad behavior because I'm not. No, you're emotionally immature. It's not <laughs> alcoholism. You just never grew up. Neither did I. I mean, I relate. You know, I get it. And I look back over the 30 plus years that I've been sober, and there's been a series of growth experiences that I should have had when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, and I was loaded and I missed it. Well, Bill. I have thoroughly enjoyed myself, if you can't tell. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, we'll talk after we end this. Uh, I'm hoping that this will be a good experience for you. We can get you back on to uh, uh, talk about the steps, uh, go a little bit deeper into your story. Uh, I feel as if we have just barely scratched the surface. And so... I want to thank you for uh, coming on to uh, Sober Speak today. Uh, uh, like I said in the prayer we go with, we have before this actually starts, I'm hoping we can record something that can give people uh, hope and inspiration in all four corners of the world. And I know uh, your words today will do that. So I appreciate you being here. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. All right. So I'm going to read from page 164 of the big book before we close it out. Uh, and on page 164, let me get there. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us, as, like me and Bill, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. <clears throat> May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, thanks, Bill. God bless you. Thank you. Oh, how about that? I just absolutely loved spending time with Mr. Bill C. He is my new hero. I mean, I just loved spending time with him. And uh, right there toward the end of uh, this episode, he said something to the effect of, uh, if you get involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and you work the steps, it will teach you how to be an adult, male or female. Oh, I love it. Just so, so, so good. If you want to reach out to Bill, 
Send me an email at john at soberspeak.com. That's J-O-H-N at soberspeak.com. And I will send on your comments to Bill. And I am going to try my dangdest. Is that a word? Dangdest? D-A-N-G-D-E-S-T, I guess. Anywhere, I'm going to try my best to get Bill back on for some additional episodes. All right. Now... On to some listener feedback coming at you. All right, Rob writes in regarding Miss Brenda J. By the way, the episode that he is referring to is the previous episode. Actually, it's two episodes ago. It was called Brenda J. Uh, God and Grace. Brenda J. God and Grace. And Rob writes in and he says, Dear John, I listened to Brenda J. this morning as I drove to work. I am a special education teacher in the Bronx, New York. Her experience, strength, and hope resonated with me more powerfully than any other speaker, exclamation point. I have listened to many of your podcasts, and I have gotten so much wisdom from them, new perspectives, deeper insight into my own behavior, etc. However, I don't think I ever felt as moved spiritually as I did this morning listening to Brenda J. I celebrated eight years on Monday, but I have felt my sobriety weakening. I have felt restless, irritable, and discontent in spite of my efforts to rely on my own program. The spirituality that came out of Brenda's J mess, Brenda J's message hit me like a two by four. What a beautiful person, exclamation point. I want to thank you, Brenda, and God for that message, for the gift of AA, and for another day of sobriety. Best regards, Rob. Thank you, Rob. I know that comes from the bottom of your heart, and I can feel it coming through your writings. And, uh, you know, i uh just fortunate enough to be here in an area where Brenda attends meetings, and I've been able to spend some time with her, and she is just off the charts, a rock star in terms of spirituality and just being an all-around great person. All right, Helen Kay writes in also about Brenda J. She says, good morning, John. I have started listening to Sober Speak as I take our more, my hour commute in the morning. I will celebrate 28 years of continuous sobriety on February 27th, 2019. Well, congratulations on that, Miss Helen Kay. I am always looking forward for ways to enhance my sobriety, and Sober Speak fits the bill. I am involved with an annual women's retreat in Ranchos, Palo Verde, California each October, and I would love to see if Brenda J could join us as one of our two guest speakers. Please forward her my email if that is appropriate. Thanks, and keep on trudging. Helen K. from Anaheim, California. Well, as you know, I forwarded the email to you and copied Brenda on it. I'll get out of the way, or I'll get out of the middle, I guess I should say. And for those of you who are in October, 
uh, or excuse me, who are in Ranchos Palo Verde, Palos Verde, uh, that's, a, that's a mouthful, uh, this October, uh, maybe you could look forward to uh, seeing Brenda at a conference. Curry wrote in on the Podbean app saying about Brenda J. She is one of the most powerful public speakers I've ever heard. Definitely impactful. Grace posted on the, on the secret Facebook group about Brenda. I love this episode. I laughed and I cried and I felt loved. Brenda J. is a treasure. Thank you so much, John, for sharing her with us. Jim S., wrote in on the secret Facebook group regarding Brenda J. He said, when I first got sober and found Sober Speak, the very first episode I listened to was episode 50 with Brenda J. called Do Not Be Discouraged. Brenda J. gave me the experience, strength, and hope to get off my chair and go to my first AA meeting in 19 years to say no again to booze and yes to life and all its possibilities. So glad to hear you again, Brenda J. Thank you for sharing from the depths of your soul to the dark hidden corners of my soul. God bless you and God bless your family. Wow. Well put, Mr. Jim S. And I want you to know that I sent these and other comments to Brenda J. And she sent me a message back, actually via text. She's not involved in the Facebook group or anything like that. I don't think she does the Facebook thing. But she said, John, people are so kind and generous. Thank you. Every time you send a note, I get the feeling of being handed one more thread in a tapestry we are all creating together heart heart well thank you brenda j so i guess what this comes down to folks if you haven't listened to brenda j god and grace two episodes back from this one right now i think that is episode 90 i think it's episode nine zero uh go back and listen to it uh so you're not missing out i mean she is absolutely fantastico all right Ash writes in on the Instagram, the IG, as I call it to be hip. She says, thank you for the podcast. I listen to it on my commute home every day. I'm a new listener and started from the beginning. I love the humor and the real life stories and I can relate to it. I'm learning so much as I listen. I'm not alone. That's right, Ash. You are not alone. Eight months and counting. Love. Sober speak. Exclamation point. Ash. Well, <coughs> excuse me, folks. Well, thank you, Ash. <coughs> oh, a little cough there. And you know what? By the time I go back and edit that, I'm not going to take it out because uh, I, I started to do that for so long when I first started this thing. I had to get it perfect. And uh, I just don't do that anymore. Anyway, Cindy writes in from Bali. She says, hello from Bali. Well, hello from Texas, Miss Cindy. Thanks for reaching out. Bali, now is that, I know Bali's an island, but is that where the Bollywood films come from? It's probably not. I have no idea what I'm talking about right now. I'm trying to put two and two together while I'm actually in the middle of uh, listener feedback. My apologies. All right. Hello from Bali. 
Mm, I am from the magical island of Bali. I'm an Australian living in Bali, and we have a wonderful fellowship here, but it's a small one, so it is so lovely to tap into your amazing messages of recovery you share. I've recently had a motorbike accident, oh man, and have been unable to get to meetings, so your podcasts have helped me enormously. My sober date is 1-12-2013, and listening to your podcasts have really made me step up my recovery game. If you are ever in Bali, reach out. Well, you can bet on it, Miss Cindy. Thank you so much for your fantastic service to our precious community. XXX. How many think that means kisses? Well, XXX right back at you, Miss Cindy. I do appreciate it, and uh, you'll be the first one I call if I ever come to Bali, can almost guarantee you. And by the way, you are correct. We do, we do indeed have a precious community. Jennifer, oh, Jennifer writes in and she says, hi, hello, Jennifer. I have 80 days of sobriety and I found your podcast, which was a blessing. There was something more I am getting from your podcast than I'm not getting at some meetings. I am a home health nurse and I'm in my car six hours a day. I cannot listen to the radio for six hours every day. So I searched podcasts for sobriety and stumbled upon your wonderful podcast exclamation point. Well, I'm so glad you stumbled upon us. Maybe it was a God thing there, Miss Jennifer. It has truly changed the way I look at my program and myself. I would love to join the Facebook group, John. Well, she got an invite and she is in there. She says, I tell everyone to listen to your podcast and how much it has helped me. Thank you so much for being of service. Jennifer C from down oh wait 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 no 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 i i, I went oh I, I started too soon so that was jennifer uh thank you jennifer for writing all that now another jennifer jennifer c from down under writes in and just in case you don't know a down under as that's australia my, my guess is most people know that but nonetheless jennifer c writes in and she says high five to you john well High five right back at you, Miss Jennifer C. from Down Under. She says, hey, John. By the way, I'm looking at what she sent over. She's found more emojis than any person I have ever had right in. There is at least seven or eight emojis in here. But nonetheless, hey, John, uh, so enjoying the podcast on Bluetooth as I do my farm jobs here Down Under in Bundaberg, Queensland. Just finished listening to the Megan and Jerry episode. So inspiring. And then she's got a big fist coming out, like inspiring. And then there's another emoji, and I don't know exactly what it is. And she says, I'm a newbie, just 70 days sober. And then there's a big smiley face emoji. She says, doing three AA meetings a week and one Al-Anon meeting a week. I'm feeling so happy and privileged to have been so warmly welcomed into the program. I was 12-stepped at 32 years old, but it has taken now till 68 to concede defeat. And then there's like a little grandma emoji. (laughs) I guess that's what that is. And then there's another emoji. Wait a second. Let me put two and two here together. You just said 
you are 68 and you are out doing your farm jobs and listening to the podcast. Well, I am impressed. I can barely put gas in my car and you're doing farm jobs at 68 in Australia. I absolutely love it. All right. So anyway, she says, I have used up my nine lives for sure. Please include me in your secret Facebook group. As she gives me her email group, I sent that over to her. She said, I bought a big book last night. And did you know that we have our own Australia, Australian audition? Audition. Edition. And she says it's basically the same, but has, quote, 35 news stories of Australian members from AA. She said AA started in Australia during World War II in 1943. So we Aussies can thank you twice. <laughs> She says, we Aussies can thank you twice for saving our sorry arses. <laughs> Double exclamation point. And then she has a big laughy emoji. Uh, and then she says, thanks, John, for your great service in this digital age. And then she's got big clapping hands. And then there's some other emoji. And then she says, love from Jenny C, a happy trudger. And then she's got an emoji of somebody walking. <laughs> So, man, that's a lot of emojis. So thank you anyway, Jennifer, for writing in. Oh, my goodness. All right, Nick writes in, and Nick says, Greetings. Thank you, Nick. Greetings to you. I really enjoyed all of the podcasts on Sober Speak. I have particularly enjoyed the episodes with David G. He seems to have a story quite similar to mine, and I appreciate his co comments on the root causes of alcoholism. It's not like the alcohol. It's not the alcohol, excuse me. Do you know if he has any recommended readings or websites that helped him during his 25-year sober, 25 sober journey? I'm curious to learn more about how David G. developed his understanding of the steps, and I have been appreciative of his discussion on step four. Any assistance is greatly appreciated. Keep up the great work. Nick, well... Once again, I just went ahead and sent that on to Mr. David G. Got out of the middle. I, I saw an email. David G. was recommending some things to him. But, uh, you know, these pe people who are speakers, they like to interact with folks that are hearing them out there in the yonder land. Does that make sense? No, the yonder land? I don't, anyway, out there in the ethosphere, out there wherever you guys are, they want to be able to yak with you. All right. Michelle writes in and she says, Hi, John. I live in Chandler, Arizona. I cannot recall how I found Sober Speak. I've been listening for quite a while, but my memory isn't the best at times. My guess is, is that I was browsing for recovery shows. I really enjoy all the speakers, but Brenda J and Jerry J spoke to me personally. There's Brenda again. Also, Billy K, because I too worked the steps from the Big Burke big book big book perspective say that 10 times quick although i am in alanon i work them that way because that's how it was given to me by my sponsor and that's how i work them with my sponsees my daughter's alcoholism brought me to my knees 11 years ago i crawled in with nowhere else to turn 
Every single relationship I have has been transformed through working the program to the best of my ability in Al-Anon. I resisted sponsorship for a long time. I thought that was for alcoholics only. In the beginning, I went to alcohol, excuse me, I went to Al-Anon for occasional relief. I didn't want to go overboard, smiley face. <laughs> After a while, I recognized there would be no true recovery for me without a sponsor, and I finally surrendered. My higher power found the perfect sponsor for me. When I celebrated my 10-year Al-Anon anniversary, I was doing the same. I was doing some math and discovered that my daughter found sobriety shortly after I found a sponsor. I do not mean to apply the going imply that going to Al-Anon got my daughter sober because that is what most of us are looking for when we start attending meetings. Also, I had been attending meetings unsponsored for about four years without any noticeable change to my daughter's disease. What I do believe is that through sponsorship's direction, I was able to get out of God's way and my daughter thankfully got sober and has remained so. Thank you for your interest. I love the podcast. God found the best way for you to be of service to so many. John, love Michelle. Well, thank you, Michelle. And, uh, you know, I do believe this thing is a God deal. And as my friend Buddy C says, you know, if God wasn't, being, wasn't using you, he could use somebody else. So uh, I'm just... Uh, Oh, just beside myself with gratitude that uh, for whatever reason, he picked me at this particular point in life to do this podcast and I get to have relationships and meet so many of you guys. It means so much to me. All right. Gus writes in and he says, I'm Gus, grateful alcoholic since 313 of 1998. My story is like most of us. I drank to live and I lived to drink until I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Racked up five DUIs and I was looking at six months to two years in prison. So I reached out for all cap letters help. And I went straight into a recovery house when I was released from a Los Angeles County jail. I knew there was no middle ground in my abstinence from alcohol and other mind-altering substances. I had already been through that, so I embraced the pro program and began a new way of life. That's why I'm grateful to get another chance of a good life one day at a time. Well, Brother Gus, I understand. I understand your sentiments. Sentiments. Thank you for writing in. Jennifer writes in on the Instagram, the IG. And this was regarding Vanessa's episode. Vanessa is a episode that I recorded with a counselor, and she did so, so well. Uh, it was all about, uh, oh gosh, a shame and many other things. And uh, Jennifer wrote in regarding Vanessa's episode, and she said, Hi, John, I'm in the middle of this episode, and I am learning so much about myself and the different emotions and what that means to my recovery, exclamation point. Thank you so much. 
I learned so much about myself from this program as a result of your podcast and speakers. I talk about this podcast in my meetings and what a gift from God this podcast is. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. Another Jennifer. We It's a Jennifer Palooza here today. Oh, oh, Jennifer Galore. Anyway, that's the end of this episode. We're going to get Mr. Bill C's episode published here pretty soon. And now I'm just starting to ramble. So I think I'm going to be back next week. I generally am back week after week, <laughs> even though there are many times where I say I'm just going to take a Here's what happens as I say, I'm okay, I'm just going to take a break next week, just kind of refresh myself. And then I start kind of itching to get back on the mic. And I start thinking about you guys and what is best. It's a, it's a weird world to live in my brain. Okay. Anyway, God bless you. I love you. Thank you for listening in. Uh, if you want to reach out to me once again, I'm at John, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. Have a good week. Adios.